You never know what little things will go right and what things will go wrong. That's okay. The kids heard him. Um, where are uh, Lim and Dale Clymer? Where are you guys? There you go. Right there. 69 years together this week. That's amazing. Amazing. That's 25 years longer than I've been alive. Oh. <laughs> uh, just to give you a little perspective uh, on that. You know, we've been, we began last week in the classroom with the great professor, Solomon, who was coming and was gathering us together and was asking us profound questions. That he was poking and actually being at some level rude and, and saying to us, have you considered these things? Because I believe in God's great wisdom. He knew that for most people throughout the course of history, but I think really even more so in our day, we don't think much about deep and profound things. We, we don't want to go there. We don't like to spend much time considering the implications of both our belief structures or our actions. We just act. We just do. It's just because, or as I've said before, my favorite phrase of all, it is what it is. Well, of course it is, but why? How did you get to this place how have, you, how have you orchestrated things so that you look to your future and know where you're going? The great questions that the, that the teacher was asking last week in Ecclesiastes 1 said, what is it to profit a man? What good is there in the world that you leave behind? What is your residual value in the world under the sun? Because if all we have is under the sun, there's no meaning to life at all. It's meaningless. And if we were courageous enough, we'd, we'd agree with that, but we're cowardly. And so we use religion and we use philosophy and we try to come up with some things and we looked at humanism and we looked at hedonism and we looked at existentialism and nihilism and basically saying all of these isms, all of these philosophies are basically a means by which we try to explain and give some meaning to our existence. But at the end of the day, if it's only life under the sun, Who cares? You live and you die. Do you remember your great, great, great granddaddy? Do you know anything about him? Are you going to be remembered? Give a bunch of money to an institution, it'll put your name on a building, but guess what's going to happen to that building one day? It's going to come down and you'll be forgotten. You do all of this stuff to be remembered, to give and have some value and profit in the world. And the teacher, Solomon, says, it's meaningless. If all there is, is life under the sun. But isn't that been the mantra of a generation? Just imagine that there's no heaven. I wonder if you can. Imagine no hell below us. Imagine no religion, too.
Just imagine life with nothing more than what you have under the sun. And where Lenin got it wrong was that's all he had. And his conclusions were wrong. That if it's meaningless on this life, then it's not going to be peace forevermore. If it's meaningless on this life and all there is is in life, I am not going to be properly motivated to give my life away for you. I'm going to become incredibly selfish. Now, I might give money to you. I might be incredibly philanthropic. I might do all of those things. But you know why I do them? For myself. For my gain. And so I use and abuse you for my gain. But it looks really good, doesn't it? What does it profit a man to give all of his money away? To give all of his wealth away? Nothing if all we have is under the sun. So Solomon, the teacher, the philosopher, comes and he says, so I want you to consider that there's something beyond the sun. I want you to consider that there is a creator living God. I want you to consider that there's more to this life than simply living and dying. I want you to consider that there's more than just eating your food today, dressing up today, that there's more than just coming to this place today. There's more than the beauty uh, of this area of the country. There's more to it. There's got to be something more to it. And if there is something more to it, if there is a God who created all of these things out of nothing, and if he designed and created man in his image, are there any implications to the manner in which you live your life? Now the answer has to be yes. But most folks don't want to go there. They don't even want to consider whether God is around. Or they may throw out something and go, well, he's just that wonderful eternal clockmaker and he spun the thing up and got it going and now he's just left us to himself. What we're wrestling with are the profound questions of If there is a God and we believe there is, what are the implications in our life? And are we living in light of those implications? Are we living in such a way that responds to him, that we can know him? And some would say it's incredibly arrogant for you Christians, for you church people, to say that you can know God. Who can know God? The only way we can know God It's not because we're arrogant and say we can, but because God has made himself knowable. You know that, right? You understand? The only way we can know anything about him is that he condescended and made himself knowable. That you look around creation, and I would put in front of you a book by Michael Behe uh, called Darwin's Black Box. That basically talks about an intelligent design and how just in the created order, you look and you have to come to a conclusion, not of some molecules that bumped together and became something complex, but of a God who created complexity in his image. He made himself knowable. In his word, which we hold true, he made himself knowable. And we can know him. And then, even more incredibly, it said that this logos, this meaning that we talked about last week in John, when John said the logos, the meaning of life, that which gives everything meaning, that which makes everyone live to their fullest potential and design, that logos, Jesus, dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He tabernacled with us. He was with us. He was here. And that's so we don't approach a theology. We don't approach a philosophy. We approach a man, God, Jesus Christ, and in him find fullness of life. 
So that's sort of the, the backdrop, if you would. That, that's the box in which we're sort of playing together over these next six or seven weeks. Now, we're not going to do this for three or four months. Uh, as one pastor who preached through this said, we just can't handle that. <laughs> but we will look at snippets and bits of it over the next six to seven weeks together. And this week, what we're looking at uh, is chapter two. And we're basically saying and asking the question, how do we then in this life that is created by God find, and you can fill in the blank, find fulfillment, find happiness, find pleasure in this life? For we were designed to find those things, but how do we find them? How do we, how do we come to a place where our hearts come alive? What makes your heart sing? What makes you just go, ah, this is it. This is what I was made to do. This is when I feel the pleasure of God. As many of you have seen or read the book of Chariots of Fire with Eric Lytle. And and he says to his sister Jenny, he goes, Jenny, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, Eric wasn't saying that I find pleasure in just being fast. And I don't find pleasure in just running. I find ultimate pleasure in running and in running fast because I find pleasure in the creator who made me that way. That's an incredibly huge distinction that we need to discuss today. And that's what we're going to be looking at. For chapter 2, man, Solomon, this guy did a lot. He would put every frat boy and sorority girl to shame of what he experienced in his life. He would put every, uh, every king around to shame of what he experienced in his life, all for the express purpose of trying to find pleasure, trying to find happiness. Because as the title that's in your bulletin says, he had bought into a false theology. It was an if-then theology. And you know how that goes, right? If I can just have this, fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. If I just date this person, then I'll be happy. If I just get married to this person, then I'll be happy. If I can just not be married to this person anymore, (laughs) then I'll be happy. If I make this much money, then I'll be happy. If I can change my body to look this way, then I'll be happy. If I can lower my handicap to this number, then I'll be happy. If, 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 then I'll be happy. And what we hear from the professor is that it's all vanity of vanities, all this vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. There's no meaning in it at all. Hear God's word. And I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. 
And I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all the kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools for which to what are the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For all the wise as for the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity. And striving after wind. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. C.S. Lewis said in a letter to a friend, It is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, wrote this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the, some, is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. 
This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Hmm. So, it is the aim of all to find happiness, to find meaning, to find significance or pleasure in this life. And what we first see is look at all of the different ways that Solomon, the great teacher, tried. Look at the list, if you were there. He tried humor and comedy in verse 2. He tried partying in verse 3. He had great real estate and wealth in verse 4. He tried to build vineyards and agricultural wealth of his day. He tried all sorts of leisure. He had vast amounts of animals, which showed again his wealth and money. He tried sex and all the things that come with sexual intimacy. He worked hard and he toiled and he said he tried meaningless other things. And then in verse 12, he said, I even tried wisdom and I tried madness and I tried folly. He was going and going and going. He said, there was nothing that I could imagine or lay my eye upon that I didn't go and try. For what end? The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of pleasure. He was at the very core a hedonist. Epicurus would have looked to him and said, ah, this is what it's all about. Eat, drink, and die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Just go for it. Go for it. But what Epicurus missed was the conclusions that Solomon came to. For you see, Solomon came to these conclusions. He said, I've done all of this. Now, some of you can relate very well to Solomon, can't you? You look back over your life, or you stand currently and look in a mirror, and you say, I am trying, and I'm working And I'm working. And at the end of the day, nothing tastes. There's no meaning. I go to bed every night wondering, like the great, that movie with Jack Nicholson, as good as it gets, what if this is as good as it gets? Have you ever let your mind go there? It's not a good place, is it? What if this is as good as as it gets. Or maybe you have a great moment and then guess what you do? You destroy the moment by saying, oh, I wish, what? That this moment could last forever. Guess what you just did? You destroyed the moment. You asked it to do more than it was designed to do. You asked it to bring you more pleasure than it was designed to do. You made it an ultimate thing. Instead of just what it was, was something to be enjoyed in the moment. Solomon, he tried everything. And you read the story of his life and you know he tried everything. And you know what his conclusions were? Verses 11, verse 17, and then 23 through 26. And I'll just list them quickly. Vanity of vanities. All of life is vanity. One pastor put it this way. Cotton candy of cotton candy. All of life is like cotton candy. You ever eaten cotton candy? Not real satisfying, is it? You eat a big old handful of it thinking this is going to be great. And what do you have about 10 seconds after that? Sticky, gooey, nasty, stomach hurting, just nothing left but residual. You're not satisfied. You know the interesting thing about cotton candy? You know what it does to you? It makes you want more. 
You know what's incredibly dangerous about crystal meth? When we lived in the mountains, it was a plague, truly, of the working class white in the mountains of North Carolina. You know the greatest hit that you'll ever take off of crystal meth? is the first one. And not one more will ever measure up. But the crystal meth addict always is searching for it because he believes the lie. If I just do this again, if I just do this again, if I just do this again. It was so bad that it led a man that we know to murder someone in pursuit of more. Vanity of vanities, he says. It's all vanity. It's like striving after the wind. It's like trying to hug the wind. Have you ever tried to hug the wind? It doesn't work, does it? There's nothing left in your arms. No gain, no profit under the sun. It led him to hatred and self-loathing, to vexation, which basically means that he was annoyed, frustrated, and worried all the time. He was restless throughout the course of his life. As one writer, Peter Kreft, uh, the Catholic writer, wrote, he said, it's doing this and having this if-then theology in your life is like having a wild goose chase, but there's no goose. You're chasing and chasing and chasing, and there's nothing to catch in the end of it all. Ligon Duncan, the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, wrote, you can't quench your thirst by drinking pleasure. It's vanity of vanities. The picture I get of it is as a young boy living in Cape Girardeau in Missouri, had some good friends, and in the summertime, and when the mosquitoes were out and about, guess what also came out and about were bats. And there were tons of bats that would fly around uh, this field that we like to play in. And so we decided that we were going to catch bats. That was going to be our goal. And we decided the best way to catch bats, we thought we were incredibly brilliant. Bats fly around and they have little talons and little, you know, claws. So if we took socks and filled them with sand and then threw the socks up in the air and hit a bat... It would get caught on its talons and the weight of the sandy sock would bring the bat down to the ground. We failed to think that the, that the bats are equipped with incredible sonar and that they could probably see this object sailing through the air at them and they would make a quick turn. But it was just this beautiful picture of vanity of vanities and striving after the wind of six or eight little elementary age boys throwing socks into the air. And can you imagine the parents standing around going, what are these idiots doing? They look so silly out there in the field. And if they had come to us and gone, what are you doing? I would have said, well, mom and dad, we're catching bats. And they would have asked, how's it going? (laughs) Well, we're working on it. Ah, I wonder if God sometimes steps back and looks at us as we try to capture pleasure in all these different ways and goes, what are they doing? They look like silly schoolboys throwing sand-filled socks into the air thinking that they're going to catch a bat. Who knew what we were going to do with the rabies-infested bat once we caught it? (laughs) Again, we don't think, right? And it's the same way in life. What if I get that girl? What if I get that wealth? What do I do if I actually succeed? What happens when I get the bigger house? We don't think through the implications of our goals oftentimes. But then we get there and we realize there's no satisfaction. It's just more toil and more worry. What? To keep it 
Some of you are absolutely exhausted. And you're exhausted because you're trying to keep something that you'll eventually lose anyway. You're trying to keep something thinking that if you keep that house, if you keep that reputation, if you keep it, then you'll be happy. You'll be someone. You'll be significant. And you're worn out. And you're tired. I remember talking to a student one time who was upset and asked, I said, why are you so upset? And the student said, trying to get friends in my grade to like me. I said, well, how's it going? So, well, I was making really, really good grades and they kept calling me a geek. They kept calling me too smart and so they didn't want to be around me. He said, so I tanked my grades and I made Fs and then they called me stupid. And didn't want to be around me. So I tried everything. I tried to be smart. And I tried to be a, a fool. Just to get their friendship. And what I realized. Is they just didn't want me. We try and try things. To gain something that if you think you have it. Then you'll be and have meaning in your life. When the reality is. There's only one place that we ultimately find our pleasure. And we'll end with this conclusion today, that we were designed for pleasure. I want you to hear that. We were designed to find happiness, we were designed to find pleasure, but only to find it in light of a relationship with God, our living creator. That we were finding, and we can only find pleasure, ultimate pleasure, in him. Why is it that things around the world that we consider sinful are pleasurable? Because they were ultimately designed for pleasure. But then the fall happened. So is it wrong that sex is pleasurable? Of course not. It was designed that way. Is it wrong that eating a good meal is pleasurable? Of course not. Is it wrong to be out on the ocean and enjoy the beauty of God's creation? Of course it's not wrong. It was designed that way. But all of those things were designed within the context of knowing God to point you towards pleasure in him. And of being able to say at that moment, I find incredible pleasure in what I'm doing because I find pleasure in God who gave this to me. That's what it's all about. John Piper coined the phrase Christian hedonism, and he caught a lot of heat for it. Because people believe that you're supposed to be a Christian and you're supposed to do your duty and be a moral person and to just obey just because you're to do it. And if you gain pleasure out of it, it's wrong. And some of you have bought into that. That came from a man named Immanuel Kant. And Kant said that if it brings pleasure to you, then it's wrong. You should obey simply because obedience sake. You should do just because you're called to do. But you realize that's not biblical. Piper says this, that God is most, most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Isn't that awesome? Think about that for a moment. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. He uses the example of a spring out in a desert uh, that you're running around and you're hot and you're so thirsty and you come upon a spring. How is it that you can glorify the spring most? By diving in and drinking deeply from it. By experiencing it fully. And then you're blessed in the midst of it. You see, we were designed to find pleasure but to only find pleasure in God. 
You see, the scriptures actually command it. It says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Jesus teaches us to love God more than money because our heart is where our treasure is. Paul wants us to believe that gaining Christ is worth the loss of everything else. And do you remember why the writer of Hebrews said Jesus endured the cross? Just because he had to endure it, right? Just because it was a blind obedience to his dad and just to suck it up and get on through it, boy. Right? No, he experienced it because he said, for the joy set before me. There is joy in experiencing God. And so you can go through all these other things. I'm not telling you to get rid of your house. I'm not telling you to get rid of your pleasures and your boats and your handicaps and all of those things. But I'm telling you, subordinate them to God. Enjoy them in light of who God is. For otherwise, it's just meaninglessness. It's nothing. It's not there. Do you relate with that at all? God says, I want you to find satisfaction in me. Is Jesus enough for you? Some of you have had most of your stuff stripped away from you. Your health, your wealth, friendships, things like that. And Christ is basically standing there in front of you and going, I'm still more than enough for you. Do you believe it? Because here's the beauty. When you find your pleasure in him, when you seek him as your pleasure you experience the greatest happiness you could ever experience, both in this life and in the life to come. Or you can go about and try to prove Solomon wrong. I've spent a lot of years trying to prove Solomon wrong. You know what my conclusion is? Vanity of vanities. It's all chasing after the wind. It's like cotton candy and cotton candy. It's meaningless under the sun. So the only way to find meaning under the sun, S-U-N, is to find meaning in the sun, S-O-N. So strive for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you that, and this is a difficult prayer to pray, thank you that you take away satisfaction from the things of this earth that they don't fully satisfy us because you want us to be fully satisfied in you. Forgive us when we've gone to other wells uh, to drink from, that we've gone to cisterns that are cracked, when we've gone to other gods and idols to try to find our pleasure when we should come to you. And Father, would we run for your glory, study for your glory, live for your glory in midst of that. Father, we thank you. We praise you and give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.